Hey, everybody. It's Karen Stefano, author of the story collection, The Secret Games of Words. And I'm delighted to have with me today the author, Andrew Rowe, author most recently of the story collection entitled, Will You Live? How are you, Andy? I'm great, Karen. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm really pleased that you could join me. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, I want to get right into this because I have quite a few questions for you. And as I had mentioned to you previously, I enjoyed the collection immensely and uh, got the the socks in the gut here and there. uh, (laughs) In a good way, I hope, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, definitely in a good way. Always in a good way. Um, sometimes they they hurt a little bit, as life mm-hmm. life does sometimes. But I I just wanted to tell everyone who's listening who may have picked up the book but hasn't gotten around to reading it yet. I'm always I always have a huge stack of books that uh, that I'm behind on on reading, and there is a summary of the book on the back cover and it talks about the stories being full of lush prose and unforgettable imagery. And I absolutely couldn't agree more with that, that summary in terms of the lush prose. Every story was loaded with it. And I just want to go through a, a couple of the, the, the lines that, that really hit me and that I really loved and that I thought were really representative of the writing style in this book. And the first was in the story entitled The Gift. And the opening paragraph goes, the premonition started not long after Shell took one of those home pregnancy tests. Plus you are, minus you're not. And sure enough, it was plus. But instead of the bright and shiny, happy couples that inhabit the TV commercials for such products, we were in the mildewed bathroom, confronted with our sagging, shrugging selves in the mirror, yelling at each other and calling for a redo. And I just, I love the image of being confronted with our sagging, shrugging selves. Uh, so that was that was one of my my favorites, and who knows, maybe I'm projecting, maybe I just identify too much with the sagging, shrugging self, but uh, we we won't go there. And, <laughs> uh, follow act was another great story, and I want to read just a couple of lines from that in the beginning of the story. Okay. It was the thick of summer and the Arizona sun was like kryptonite, making everyone weaker, stupider. Motivation became an issue. And that's all I wanted to uh, talk about in in that story. And then in the title story, Where You Live, again, very early in the story, you have the following lines. When the phone rang, I'd been in my bedroom, late morning but still in bed. Lightning Hopkins, that patron saint of the lonely and bluesy on the stereo, contemplating the black hole of another Sunday. Again, I just love that line, contemplating the black hole of another Sunday. Uh, I love how that, that sums up 
loneliness and and again you can you can accuse me of of projecting in, in my reading <laughs> of your of your story I'm going to stop I won't, there I won't because, accuse, but yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, you're, you're too kind, Andy. Uh, but, you know, on the, on the vein of lush prose, I would like to shut up and ask you to please read, if you would, your story stalling from this collection. Okay, I'd, I'd, I'd be happy to. And, and it's, it's um, so nice to hear you call out those, those lines that just... Um, it's just uh, from one writer to another when there's that level of uh, appreciation, I get a little tingly. So thank you for, <laughs> for, for, for that. I really appreciate it. Um, but yeah, this, my, this my is a, a fairly, sh- this is a, yeah, stall. This is a story called uh, stalling and uh, it's uh, it's one of the shorter pieces in the collection. My son six is practicing dying. It's something he started doing at bedtime, part of the nightly wind down routine when I read him books and he stalls because he doesn't want to go to sleep yet. So he pretends he's dying. Lately, I've been telling him about my father who died two months before he was born. And along with telling him about my father, his grandfather, there have been the usual tricky questions about death. What happens to our bodies when we die? Where do we go? Do we know we're dead? Is it just like sleeping? Watch, he instructs me, gently lying himself down in his bed and flattening his arms against his sides like a body in a coffin. No, wait, now, watch me now. See if you can see me breathing. He holds his breath for as long as he can, about 15 seconds, though it seems longer, his chest remaining flat and still, and he looks dead, enough so that it makes me hold my breath. Then his breathing returns in one big exhale and he coughs and it's over and he's asking more questions, stalling. What was I like when I was a baby? What were you like when you were a baby, daddy? What was mommy like when she was a baby? What was grandpa Ron like? I answer the questions. The last one is hard though, even after all these years. I tell my son that his grandfather loved him very much, that he liked tennis, that he was funny and liked to joke, and that we're all very sad he's not here. We're sad, my son asks. Yeah, we're sad, I tell him, but it's okay to be sad. We just miss him. He rolls over on his side like he might finally be ready to sleep. I miss him too, he says. He breathes and closes his eyes. I hold my breath again. He doesn't move. Oh, and that's falling. Beautiful. I I oh, love it. <laughs> and I love hearing you. I love hearing you read it. Now this piece uh, originally appeared in Smoke Long Quarterly, correct? That that is correct. That is correct. I'm a huge fan of Smoke Long Quarterly and uh it's Smoke Long is strictly a flash fiction publication, and in your collection, you have both flash and full-length stories, and I was Mm -hmm. curious as to whether you sit down intending to write one or the other, or how how Mm. does that work for you? 
Yeah, uh, that's an interesting question. I, I th- usually what happens is that I'll know fairly soon from the outset if a, if a piece is going to be very short or if it's going to be more of a full-length uh, story. So in the case of a story like Stalling, I mean, I, I, I had the idea of it in in my head and just that it was going to be kind of capturing this moment between a father and a son and this sort of like absent grandfather that the the, the child has never known. And so it, from the conception there, it was, I had it as a flash. I, I can't say that I've ever had an idea for something that say was a, a flash story and then it evolved into a longer full-length story or vice versa. Um, like I said, it's usually something that I'm pretty aware of from from the get-go. And I know you kind of work in both, both forms as well too, so I don't know if you've found the same thing as well. Yeah, uh, I think I think I go through I go through phases, and I and yeah. I had I had a big flash fiction phase in 2013, and that's when I generated uh, any of the flash stories that appeared in my collection in your book. Um, right, right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but yeah, I, 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 think I, I do sit down to write one or the other and, uh, and, and I can't, I can't think of an example where I've ever sitting down, so, sitting down. I'm so articulate, uh, where I've ever, <laughs> uh, <laughs> sit down at my desk, uh, with the intention right. of, of writing a flash piece and then had a full length story come out. Yeah. I think it is. Yeah, it is fairly intentional for for me anyway. I don't know, I don't know how it works for other people, and yeah. uh, I don't think any of us really know what what our process is. I mean, are you do you do you have a process? Are you able to articulate? Here's my process. My process. It's yeah. That's yeah. It's uh probably <laughs> I probably can't articulate it very well um but i i I, in terms of the way it usually works for me is that i'm a very slow writer and i kind of do revise as i go um Mm -hmm. so i know that there's a lot of people who uh espouse the philosophy of get out that crappy first draft um as soon Mm -hmm. as possible and then go back over it and so i i certainly see the merits of that i know that's really successful for a lot of people but for better or for worse, I tend to just write very slowly, and I really um, try to follow that. Um, um, I guess it's the, the, the Hemingway advice, which I've found very helpful, is that leave a little something in the well for the next day. So I just find it super important to carry that sense of momentum from one writing session um, to the to the next. And it's also been somewhat of a challenge just with you know having kids and a day job and just finding the time to write. So it's kind of uh, these days, I'm uh, a little bit all over the the map, though I do prefer to write early in the morning when my brain is yeah. still kind of half awake and half asleep, right. and I just feel more receptive. And also, as the day <laughs> grows on with, again, uh, raising kids in, in, a, in a job, it's like my, my creative juices kind of <laughs> fade throughout the course of the day. So I might do stuff at night, more kind of honing and editing. Um, but I really try to just build that sense of momentum, whether it's daily or every other day, or even if there's more gaps in between when I write to just kind of have that sense of moving a story or a book uh, forward, even if it's time at the chair writing, or even if it's just stuff that 
you're figuring out in your mind if it's a structural thing or an idea for a scene, just like some sort of movement to carry carry you forward. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of a kind of a, a mess of an answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Um, it, by by definition, uh, uh, the answer to that question is going to be a mess of an answer. But I but right. I understand, and I and I and I definitely identify with the need to get the uh, butt in chair time in in the morning before the day yeah takes control and it, it exhausts you and uh maybe sends your mood in different directions and your energy level in different yeah. directions but i agree with that i can't i can't do anything in the evening i'm useless i can yeah I, if i i'm lucky if i can read in the evening so i <laughs> yeah i i, 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 I read and fall asleep but <laughs> but yeah no, what i found too is that even if you are what I, what I was doing in order to, to, to finish my novel, The Miracle Girl, which came out a few years ago, is that I was just waking up kind of extra early in the morning to get in an hour's time of, of writing usually. But even though I was waking up early, what I found is that it kind of, it was kind of almost like going to the gym where it kind of just gave you some energy and for the day and it just like feeling and knowing that I'd had that writing and whether it mm-hmm. went well or not so well, I just kind of knew I was, again, carrying it forward and making momentum. So it actually kind of helps propel me through the day uh, as as well. Yeah, I, I totally get that. And uh, I like the analogy to a, a workout because when I get up and write in the morning, and obviously it always feels better if you feel like it's going well rather than poorly, but even if it's a, a bad writing day, I feel like I've done something for me, and right, I, right. I feel like I'm continuing momentum, and no matter what happens in that work day or just whatever life throws at you that day, you still get to walk away with, hey, at least I sat down and wrote, or at least I went yeah. for a run. I've got that. Nobody can take that away from me today. And it's it's phenomenally satisfying. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's really it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you about the inspiration for the story stalling. Is, is there an autobiographical mm-hmm. component to this piece? I know you have uh children yeah yeah i have yeah there's it's it's i really don't consider myself an autobiographical writer at all but of course there are things throughout the story collection in my novel that are you know bits and pieces of me that you can trace the autobiography but on the whole and I'm, I'm i i don't um gravitate towards that uh stalling is an exception where i mean it is fiction, I guess, but it's also probably one of the most autobiographical stories I've ever written. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, uh, kind of what I was saying earlier, just kind of that idea of like three generations. And my father did pass away a couple months before my first son was born. So that's always been one of those events that's kind of, um, stuck with me. And, um, so I think I was just trying to work on that a bit. But again, it was with my son and um, he would do this kind of thing. Yeah. Where he would just like, again, their their children, as they get older, um, they start wondering about these things like death and these bigger questions. And uh, so it's just really, that story is rooted in some of the interactions with my, with my, my oldest son. I also have another story that's 
kind of a companion piece. It's called How to Talk to Children About Death, which is, um, it's, it's kind of dark too, but there's also some levity uh, there as well. It was just kind of too similar to include in the, the collection, but it is kind of uh, also very autobiographical as well. Oh, I, I love that. And I love that title and uh, can identify with it in, in my collection uh, following my own father's death in 2006 I can't believe it's been that long but Mm. uh I I wrote a story called how to read your father's obituary and Mm. it stemmed from the pain I felt looking standing in the lobby of uh of my law firm where I was working at the time and looking at my father's obituary in the San Diego Union and how angry and gutted and upset I felt because you know you can't you can't sum up a person's life in an obituary you know you can't <laughs> yeah. you know and it just and so it, you know that's the good news when you're a writer about pain I guess that you know you get a story out of it right <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's it's, me, it's, I that's guess me it's, being an optimist, Andy. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I, there's something to be said for, for that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you do, you know, experience these painful things and, and I don't, you know, for people who aren't writers, I'm sure they have other kind of mechanisms and ways to do it, but for, for myself and, and from you as well, it's just kind of a way to process that. And I can just really picture that, that moment that you're just, describing very vividly like yeah how do you encapsulate a life into a couple of paragraphs and there's just of course there's just no there's just no uh, there's no way so I guess as as writers we just you know take those those moments and and carry them forward and they manifest themselves in the in the writing and the work that we do back to the um the autobiographical element too and I've never uh, I'd never really considered I've written some non- fiction and essays and articles and book reviews, but I'd never really considered writing a memoir, but I, but I did at that point in time where my, my father had died and then uh, the birth of my first child. And it was just such a um, intense, uh, unique time of, of my life where again, you're, you're dealing with the loss of a parent, but then yet you are becoming a parent yourself. So uh, I didn't end up really pursuing that. That's not to say maybe at some point in the future I, I wouldn't, but um, that was my only kind of <laughs> consideration, at least, of actually writing something that was, you know, a book that was was a memoir and not fiction. Yeah, well, that's a that's a book I would like to read, and I think uh, a lot uh, people would would also and would identify with that. So. Um, you know, I hope I hope you consider it. But speaking, you know, speaking of pain and pain yeah. as inspiration for a, a writer's work, you you do that in this story collection where you live, obviously, and you do it you do it, mm-hmm. but you you also expertly weave in the pain of ordinariness the pain of the dull parts 
of life. But you do that without making the work on the page dull, and quite quite the contrary. Um, I wanted to ask you if you if you know how you how do you pull that off? Uh wow <laughs> well first of all thank you for, for for saying that i pulled it off because of course uh as a writer you always wonder if, if those things are are working and i think you definitely um tapped into something um i i probably don't have a great answer but i think the the thing that comes to mind is just um when you are writing about this sort of like you said this ordinariness of life um what's really important is to uh, two things is to really just have the 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 language just really um be evocative and and be more than just sort of like the ho-hum and so that's something i really and you kind of touched on that with your you know some of the quotes there that you're at the beginning um so it's really pay at the sentence level like making sure that 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 that's going to elevate the story hopefully in in some way and then the second thing is just to um and again this kind of gets back to what i was i think i was doing in my novel it's probably kind of a i guess a theme or <laughs> a recurring thing with me but it's just like taking the everyday and trying to uh and the ordinary and to render it to so that it's more extraordinary and more um exalted mm-hmm. uh, uh, and a lot of that i think has to do with just the the characters themselves and again these stories i guess they've been called quiet and and so i never know if that's meant as a <laughs> backhanded compliment or not but but they are kind of more character-based um you know day in the life sort of things um, although some span more more time than that but it's just really trying to breathe life into these through these characters and it also gets back to just not rushing and letting these things take time and i think when you when you do that um, and you're taking the time for the language, for the characters, for all the fine details uh, of the story. That that's hopefully all going to come together and, and create the effect that you're that you're describing. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, so you said, did I hear you right? You said that people have described the stories in this collection as quiet. Is that true? Um, yeah, I think I've heard that. You know, like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Does that not seem I mean, seem applicable? Well, I don't know. I mean, everybody has their own take on a story and on a collection, and I and I can yeah. see that uh, from from my point of view of having read this collection. But I would, yeah, I don't know if I use the word quiet. I mean, I, I, quiet in that they sneak up on you, um, and but I think I would use the word lush again going back to the mm-hmm. the lush prose uh theme uh in not theme but uh, uh that 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 goes consistently throughout your work and yeah. um i guess i i i balk a little bit at the the quiet label just because the the stories are lush but they do you know punch you in the gut here, here and there again, like, like yeah. life does, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I probably wouldn't self-label it as, as that, but again, just from like hearing things from this collection and some of my stories in, in the past, but, uh, but that's, I'm, I'm glad you said that. That's good to hear. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, always, it's always funny to, to hear other people talk about your work and the labels they put on it. Some of which are, are, complimentary and some 
that maybe are intended as complimentary and that that you that you disagree with because it's your work and right. it's your baby. It's just it's an interesting situation and to have people talk to you about your stories and and say, you know, I love the way you did this and and, and you say, oh, thank you, and then you walk away going, huh, I didn't I didn't know I did that. Uh, so it's it's, <laughs> it's interesting yeah. sharing sharing a piece of yourself on the page. Uh, but I wanted to, to ask you something else. Uh, I noticed in your bio uh, in this collection that you've been to, you've probably been to a lot of conferences over the years, but I noticed that you had gone to Tin House and you'd gone to uh, Squaw Valley. And I, I too went to those conferences, Tin House a couple of times and Squaw only once and I love them both, although for, for different reasons. And I just was wondering mm-hmm. about what other conferences you might have been to that you've loved, something that you want to share with those who are listening. If there's anything off the beaten path that people maybe yeah. haven't haven't heard about. Anything anything that you particularly loved and would you know would tell all your best friends you've got to go to this one? Well, I've actually, those are the only two writing conferences that, that I've been to, the ones that you mentioned, the Tin House and the Squaw Valley one. So um, I don't, I mean, there's, there's others that I've considered going to over the years, you know, some of the bigger ones, I guess, like Swanee and, and Breadloaf, but I've never, I've, I've never uh, gone to those. Um, so the only thing just in terms of writing conferences in general um, is you probably <laughs> experienced. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, it's interesting because you do get, um, I mean, it's bit, well, they were great experiences and, and, I, and I met folks that I keep in touch with um, to, to this day. Um, there's also, I guess that some of them, uh, what I've observed firsthand and seen too, there's a little bit of that kind of like people go there with an agenda and uh, there's a little bit of a like stalker. <laughs> people yeah. tend to stalk the agents and the editors. And so I would just, you know, that's not my, my nature. So I, I you know, just kind of shy away from that, but I would just like to, to, to advise people just to kind of use your, use your best judgment, because just to use as an example <laughs> of the, the tin, the, the tin house conference, um, I, I'll never forget this. I was, um, Lori Moore was, um, was there and she was signing books and the person in front of me was getting a book sign and she asked Lori Moore, can I have your email address? And Lori Moore, who's, who's kind of known for being a little persnickety, just looked at this person and said, no, I'm not going to give you my, my email address. But, um, but the other thing I love it. that happened, too, too, the, the other thing there as well, um, it was the first Tin House conference uh, that they actually held, which was great to be part of that inaugural event. But, um, you know, a lot of people are like they're putting stories in editors' hands and things like that. And, and it's just not my style. I did connect with, uh, you know, over the course of the week with one of the assistant editors. And then a couple of weeks after the conference, I just, I sent him an email and just said, Hey, I, I have a story here that, um, that I thought might be a good fit. Really enjoyed the conference. You know, here, here it is. And, and, uh, lo and behold, it did end up getting accepted into to Tin House. So that's certainly the exception. Wow. And that's an, that's one of the ones that's yeah. in the collection as well called, are you okay? But, um, but, but again, I mean, it, it just people just use your judgment. Cause I know that from knowing the editor agent side, uh, from hearing 
their point of view on the, I mean, they're there to meet people and interact and obviously, but um, it can get kind of competitive and intense sometimes. I don't know if that mirrors your experience or not. Well, um, it, 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 it's interesting because I don't think I've ever gone to a conference and I've gone to Tin House twice, Squaw, uh, Breadloaf, uh, and probably a couple of others. And never was I there with something to pitch or sell per se. And so any interactions I had with agents and editors were like, Hey, you know, I, I got nothing right now, but uh, you know, I might reach out to you someday, someday in the future. And, you know, obviously they're gracious and say, "Uh, yeah, sure. Of course. uh, uh, Make sure you, mention uh tin house or square or whatever it was in the in the right. email header and so but but i agree with you that a light touch in those situations is probably going to serve a person better yeah. than you know and that and serve yourself too because you just you, right. you get yourself so wound up and if you know this person doesn't say yes i want to represent you i think you're a genius and you're going to be disappointed and and we've got yeah. to we've got to pace ourselves <laughs> pace pace, so, pace out the disappointment of the writer's life yeah right yeah exactly it's, exactly it's, it's it's just it's just like having if if you go into a writer's conference with the mindset of i'm going to meet other writers i'm going to learn um and and then anything else is kind of, you know, in addition, anything comes of it. That's great. I mean, I, but I think again, just like go, go with the, the open mind of just learning, connecting with other writers and, uh, and the, they've been really positive experiences for me on, on that end. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I mean, I've met some people at these conferences who uh, are literally have become my best friends. And I don't mean, you know, my best writing friends i mean literally my best friend yeah and life, so that, life that's friends, a pretty yeah, beautiful yeah. thing yeah yeah uh so i'm going to ask you shifting gears and ask you something completely random uh and i'll okay. and i'll share with you uh that an unintended theme that has seemed to come forth in the podcasts i've done in 2017 has been first jobs. And this came up in my podcast with uh, CLS Ferguson, with Heidi Barnes, it came up with a couple of other people too, oddly. And in your story, uh, in this this collection, the story entitled, Not the LA in My Mind, your narrator is a phlebotomist. And I know I was going to trip up on that word. It's not a word. It's a a mouthful. It's a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I want to ask you uh, two questions. One, how did you choose this job for this narrator? And Mm -hmm. tell me, what was your first job? And either, you know, an off-the-book job or your first W-2 job or both? Okay. Okay. So we'll go, go back in the archives for that one. Well, I'll talk a little bit, I mean, I'll talk about the, um, the phlebotomist reference in the, in the story first. So I, I, I had that idea a very long time ago, I, somebody that I went to high school with and, 
after she graduated from from high school, this was uh, back in the mid '80s. She got a job. And instead of going to college, she went and became a phlebotomist, and she was making I don't know it was eighteen or twenty dollars an hour. And at a high school back then, I thought that's a pretty good uh, that's a pretty good uh, gig. And so as a job, that always kind of struck me. And then for the story, what I'd been carrying around for for many years was this idea of somebody who um, draws a person's blood, and it's this very intimate act, but yet she herself. Um, is sort of very withdrawn. And so again, that contrast of this intimacy uh, with people while also being sort of withdrawn from, from people as well is what struck me. And I had the first line of that story is I know blood. And for many years I had that first line and knowing that the character was a phlebotomist, but it took many years to actually figure out what the story <laughs> beyond yeah. and behind all that was. So that was the, the, the phlebotomist reference. As far as myself, um, Let's see, my first job, it was in high school, and I was, um, I guess I was a, a grocery store bagger, box boy, or whatever they called it back then. Uh, it, was, it was for a store in Southern California called Gemco, which was probably like a precursor oh to yeah. Wa- Walmart. I don't know, <laughs> yeah. but they kind of, they, I remember they sold Gemco's. everything. Oh, you, yeah. you remember Gemco? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so, I yeah, grew up sold. in Southern California, too. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, and so um, they sold they sold food and groceries in addition to you know lawnmowers and everything. So I was uh, I would bag groceries and then I would also um, go collect the shopping carts. And I worked during summers in again Southern California where it was a hundred plus degrees and very smoggy, and we were required to wear long sleeve shirts and a tie. So I just remember sweating, nice. sweating, sweating a lot and bagging a lot of groceries and cleaning up a lot of. Uh, uh, stuff <laughs> in the store. <laughs> I, I like it. So, so, that was, so did you, were you, were you pretty impressed with yourself? Did you think you were cool or were you, did you feel, how did you feel about your job? Because oh, that's as, another interesting as, question, you know? Yeah, that is. I didn't think, you know, the cool job, most of my a core group of my friends in high school delivered pizzas for Domino's. And I thought that was a cool job because they got to, <laughs> drive around and, and, you know, kind of make stops and go to parties and (laughs) stuff like that. So I don't think it was, I didn't like to have to, I had to wear a tie as well. So I didn't think it was very cool. Um, But it was actually, I think, you know, in terms of, if I recall correctly on the the pay level, it was like one of the better paying jobs, I think, amongst my, amongst my peers. Um, But uh, there is actually a reference to that job in my book, though, I think in a story called Job History. I'd forgotten about that. Um, there's a reference to being a, gr- a grocery store bagger and having to have a, you know, hearing over the intercom clean up on aisle seven and then going to aisle seven and where I found that somebody had uh, actually thrown up on the floor. So that is the true story. Nice. There. So see, there is autobi- nice. there, there are autobiographical elements in my stories. I, I completely love <laughs> Well, that's, that's good. That's a good, that's a good tidbit. I'll, uh, uh, I'm going to reread that story with it with a yeah. different eye now. <laughs> I love it. Um, well, Andy, we're we're running out of time, uh, but really quickly, I just wanted to wrap up with one last question. And obviously, you have this lovely collection where you live, and you've published many short stories and many publications, and then you have the lovely novel, uh, The Miracle Miracle Girl. It, 
tell us really quickly, what are you working on now? Well, right now, um, it's uh, my. There's a lot going on in my in my life. I recently moved from Southern California to the Bay Area and started a new job, and and so my writing time has been pretty limited. But I've been working on uh, another novel, uh, actually, kind of going back and forth between um, two different novels. Um, so hopefully, once life kind of settles down um, in in a little while here, I'll really kind of I'm gonna pick one and kind of go forward and do that. But yeah, I just been gravitating towards novels for whatever reason. All right. Well, Andy, that's all we have time for today. And I just want to thank you again so much for joining me. It's been delightful to hear you read, to talk to you about these wonderful stories. And just thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Karen. Really enjoyed chatting with you.